the people were horrified at the executions, the speed at which they took place, and contrast that with Captain Vaughan Colthorst, who was the man who, he didn't actually shoot Sheehy Scaffington and his two colleagues, but he did order their execution, and he did shoot a 17-year-old youth, and he shot Richard O'Carroll uh, out of hand during the Rising. He was found guilty but insane. Now, it took a campaign to do that, and people compared that, the speed with which the rebel leaders were executed, and in fact more people would have been executed except that Asquith, Prime Minister of the day, when he came to Dublin and saw what was happening, just told Maxwell to stop, that he killed quite a lot of people, thanks very much. Um, but uh, if it hadn't been for that, then uh, I've no doubt that quite a lot of the other people who were sentenced to death, like Eamon de Valera and Thomas Ash and Cosgrave is another one, would all have been executed as well if Maxwell had been allowed to carry on. So there was that revulsion. But then, of course, the other thing was fear of conscription. And it was it was the hardship caused by the war in the country. And it was the, the perception wasn't just perception. It was a reality that the British War Office repeatedly denigrated the the Irish, treated them with suspicion and contempt, and even alienated their own potential. Castle Catholics like Catherine Tynan were alienated, let alone ordinary people, by the contempt with which the British establishment treated the Irish war effort. The problem for Redmond is, you know, the war took too, dragged on too long and was too costly, both financially, uh, economically, and in blood. So once the war did drag on, his project was doomed. And then he was caught in this situation where you had a coalition government. So instead of having a situation where the Irish party had the balance of power between the Tories and the Liberals, the Tories and the Liberals were the government, and the people on the outside were the Irish party. He was offered a position in the cabinet, and he couldn't accept it because of position as a nationalist. So the Irish party lost out in every direction. The war was an unmitigated disaster for Redmond and that whole Home Rule project. One very provocative and very interesting essay written by the late Peter Hurt was that the Easter Rising really changed very little, that the Great War and the failure of Home Rule had undermined the Irish party, that it was going to be replaced by a more radical alternative, and in Hurt's words, the Easter Rising just got a lot more people killed. What do you think of that? I'm not sure it's so clear-cut that the Irish party was finished. I mean, even with the huge impact of 1916, I mean, they're still winning by-elections, a series of three by-elections in 1917, 1918. I'm not sure that Home Rule was a doomed cut. I think if there hadn't been an Easter Rising, the most likely scenario would have been that Home Rule would have been brought in at some point. And of course, this could also have happened after the Easter Rising. Perhaps the British government had really prioritised implementing Home Rule in the immediate aftermath of the Rising when they sent Lloyd George over. Had some kind of Home Rule been implemented, I think probably then you would have seen Irish politics separating into a a bit like happened after the the Treaty of 1922, you would have had one faction that was probably happy enough to work home rule within the political system, within the UK, within the empire, and then you would have had, presumably, another political faction who would have had a much more kind of a ambitious agenda that would have led towards greater freedom. There's a temptation to write off the Easter Rising because some of the consequences of it were so negative, and, you know, in particular, kind of, it, it legitimises a very problematic tradition of elitist mm-hmm. um, political violence, which Republicans would embrace in the Civil War and going right up into the Troubles. Temptation to kind of argue that this didn't really get Ireland very far, but I think if you look at what Republicans achieve by the end of the War of Independence, they, they achieve much more generous political settlement with the treaty than what was even an offer in 1920 with the Government of Ireland Act. While you could argue that nationalists could evolve from Home Rule to independence, I think that remains questionable, whereas we do know that with the greater kind of 
political freedom that was achieved through the use of violence that that made possible an independent state much more quickly, you know, by the 1940s. I'd be reluctant to say it achieved nothing, even though I can see why one might be tempted to make that argument. The only other point I would add is it seems to me that why Republicans were much more successful during the War of Independence was because they achieved a, an enormous level of political mobilisation and democratic legitimacy, which the Easter Rising didn't have. And I think that is a very important difference between the Easter Rising and the War of Independence. The Easter Rising can be seen as a kind of a, a spark, an accelerator, but it couldn't have achieved what was achieved during the War of Independence because it lacked that kind of mass mobilisation and democratic legitimacy that Republicans achieved with the general election of 1918 and the establishment of the Doyle. The Easter Rising, in terms of the actual activists, I think, of the revolutionary period was very important. Ernie O'Malley talks about it, Tom Barry, Liam Lynch, people like that. But there was other radicalising factors as far as general population was concerned, things like the threat of conscription, the land question, things like that. What do you make of the relative importance of those factors? I think it's next to impossible to evaluate or rank politicising factors. We have a really good source to think about politicisation with the witness statements because we've got 1,700 in-depth accounts of people talking about how they came to be involved in Republican politics. It seems to me that very few people were radicalised before 1916, whereas large numbers of people were radicalised after 1916. But I'm not sure the reasons why they are radicalised are so different in both periods, even though the the numbers of people being radicalised are. So, I mean, you have people talking about a whole range of things, such as hatred of British rule or British cultural imperialism, their attraction to Irish separatism or Irish culture, bound up economic grievances, you know, land in the countryside, for example, or other radical influences in in urban areas that 1913, for example, in, in Dublin. The confrontations between the police and the people during the lockout contributed somewhat to people feeling more hostile to them and, in some cases, wanting to shoot them in, in later periods. You have a, a traumatic event like that, police, over a number of years, will repair their relations with the civilian population. The, the great misfortune in, for the DMP was that you know they didn't have that opportunity. They were involved again in suppressing the rising, and after the rising, they would have continue to be the eyes and ears of not just the sort of state apparatus in the usual sense, but even things like checking out claims came in for compensation, for example. Police would have been expected to check them out, whether it was damage to property or whether it was someone who suffered an injury looking for a claim. The police would go and investigate and see if the claim was bona fide or not. So even in areas like that, the, the police never really regained the ground lost before the War of Independence broke out in 1919. So the DMP certainly were fairly seriously damaged as an institution and as an operational force by all those events from 1913 onwards and never really recovered in Dublin during the war. The problem they had was they were associated, of course, with the war and associated with hardship and repression. Police were part of that. So gradually, over the years, even support that would normally exist for the police in middle-class areas of Dublin that was eroded too. To some extent, the ideological factors for radicalisation can exaggerate it. People were often radicalised after they joined political organisation rather than that they joined a political organisation because they were radicalised. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, for example, at how a, a volunteer company is founded before or more often after the Easter Rising in a, in a small country area, what you'll usually find is that a very large number of people will suddenly join the unit. And this suggests that people aren't necessarily radicalised as individuals, but rather, you know, a much broader kind of wave of politicisation and radicalisation has taken place. And then once people are within 
the organisation, well then some of them will become more consciously radicalised as to things such as support of a republic as a political state or willingness to use violence or so on. And I think also you have to be careful at simply reading people's narratives as the main evidence for understanding how people are politicised. People will often shape an narrative consciously or unconsciously to emphasise certain things. So there's no doubt that 1916 was crucial in changing the politics of the period, but very often you'll find people explaining their conversion to republicanism, attributing it to 1916, when they might in fact have joined the republican movement years later. Yeah, Tom Barry for example. Exactly, yeah. In Hart's essay, one of the interesting things that he writes is what the rebels of 1916 achieved was power. It strikes me that many of the surviving leaders or prominent people in the rebellion actually ended up on the pro-treaty side in 1922. Like Desmond Fitzgerald, Ernest Blythe, Michael Collins, W.T. Cosgrave. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? The leading figures on both sides are very often people who have taken part in 1916. And I think there's a number of ways of thinking about why that is. Peter Hart and his biography of Mick Collins draws the picture of an elevator. The people who are there first move up. The small minority of separatists who are politically active before 1916 and who took part in 1916 are almost by, by default likely to become you know, leading figures after the Easter Rising. They have that leader kind of experience, but also they have that kind of credibility of having taken part in 1916. The relative significance of 1916 as a, as a factor on both sides, I think, is an interesting question because in some ways the 1916 legacy was much more easily deployed by people who took the anti-treaty side because part of the thinking behind 1916 had been that while it wasn't politically very realistic, it was a kind of a, a principled assertion of Ireland's Republican status. So it was very easy to use all of those arguments in the treaty and very easy for de Valera to use them during the 1920s. And then de Valera then had to assume the responsibilities of state and government in the 1930s. Soon all this, the legacy of 1916 became very tricky when he had to suppress IRA figures. But I suppose that, that you know, one point raised by your question is that a lot of the, um, the people who took part in 1916 who ended up taking the pro-treaty side were clearly very comfortable with kind of notions of being socially conservative, embracing a kind of a moderate form of rule. Uh, so they weren't all necessarily as radical as one might have imagined because they'd taken part in 1916. A lot of the figures that you talk about actually felt even at the time, you know, had some mixed feelings about 1916. Fitzgerald, for example, was rather, he felt guilty about having taken men in 1916 when he knew it had very little chance of success. You find that kind of mentality among some of the other common male figures. Collins, for example, very famously taught 1916, very impressive on some levels, made very little kind of strategic sense. So again, it goes back to that issue of people had different psychological or temperamental approaches to what happened in 1916. I think they were lucky that there was a, a strong current, anti-war, anti-British current running by 1916 already, and I think that would have strengthened anyway whether or not there was a rising. The rising obviously changed the dynamics of it, the roles of different people, but there was going to be some eruption anyway. People tend to blame the rising for it, but I mean, the important date in modern Irish history isn't 1913 or 1916 or 1922 or any of these. The important date in modern Irish history, like the rest of Western Europe, is 1914. That's what changed. The First World War has changed and been rehabilitated in recent years. What about the rising? Should we still remember the rising? I think a lot of our knowledge of the Easter Rising is shaped by how it was kind of reconstructed and perceived afterwards. So what gets huge prominence as a kind of a narrative of the Easter Rising develops in the years and decades after the Easter Rising, the proclamation and Patrick Pierce and that, how, the, 
de Valera and that um, raises kind of interesting questions because there were obviously differences between late 19th century early 20th century Fenianism and the kind of more Catholic nationalist kind of republicanism that uh, emerges in the 20s and 30s the way in which we see 1916 is, is very much shaped by this kind of ideological construct which emerges after the rising deeper roots that more radical secular democratic Fenianism has were, were probably marginalised somewhat by the way in which which we, we thought about the rising afterwards. I don't think the rising could have happened anywhere in Ireland except Dublin. I mean, that weird sort of combination of radical social views and radical republicanism, votes for women, the rights of children, all these sort of uh, things were quite advanced in Irish society at that time, and we know that from the reaction that came afterwards. We would never have had the 1916 proclamation. We would never have had the democratic programme of the First All ever concocted anywhere outside of Dublin. There's nowhere else in this country, north or south, that you'd have come up with such a progressive social document and such a, an aspirational document. It set the site very high, but if we didn't have that, we'd have no real terms of reference that actually brought us into the 20th century. And unfortunately, all, all those ideals were stamped out again by a combination of very conservative middle class, a very powerful Catholic church, and uh, and politician, some of whom had some sort of revolutionary legacy, but most of whom uh, just descended into clientelist politics like the Irish party people they replaced.